everybody, and welcome to the March episode of the Bake It Off podcast. I know technically this is being recorded and released on April 1st, but I believe I should still call it the March episode because I recorded the entire thing yesterday and my approximately 10-year-old MacBook Pro decided to not keep any of that. Apparently it thought it was rubbish, so we'll do it again. Um, I hope everyone's feeling well. I hope that you're maybe seeing some light at the end of the pandemic tunnel. I think as everyone has, I've kind of been feeling the weight of everything over the last few weeks as we passed the one year mark of being in a pandemic and just feeling overwhelmed by that and having those flashbacks of, oh my goodness, this was the last day I was in the office or the last day I was in the studio or the last day I was in the gym, all that kind of stuff. And it's just like, oh my goodness, I can't believe this has been a whole year. But of course, I immediately chastise myself for having those overwhelming you know, thoughts because I have so many wonderful advantages in my life. But if I were talking to a friend who was expressing those feelings, and that's the best way I've kind of found to be nice to myself when I'm about to be really mean to myself, I would tell them that they're not alone in feeling that way because it's been an absolutely unbelievable year. And I think that we forget that even when we, you know, quote unquote, get used to it, it's still kind of like carrying a backpack full of rocks. Technically, it's not getting heavier. It weighs the same as it always did. But in effect, it absolutely is. And it feels heavier kind of every day. So, you know, I know it's difficult to be cautiously optimistic when we feel like we're just asking for another disappointment. I feel this way about a lot of things sometimes. I think when you let yourself feel optimistic, it sort of feels like a vulnerability and it sort of feels like, okay, well, I'm just waiting for everything to go downhill again, which by the way, never made sense to me as a metaphor because I would rather go downhill than uphill, but that's neither here nor there. But to paraphrase a quote that I really appreciated from my favorite murder, which is one of my favorite podcasts, hope is smart. Hope is clever and generous and it's all the things that we want to be. So I'm sure I'm I'm not saying it exactly right and who knows they were probably paraphrasing too, but hope is smart. It's smart to be hopeful and if you're feeling a little bit of hope, a little bit of light coming through, you're being smart, you're being open. So, you know, you're not alone. Anyway, off the soapbox into the kitchen. I obviously celebrated both Pi Day and St. Patrick's Day in March with bakes. Uh, although my St. Patrick's Day Irish soda bread was a little bit early, I made it with the intention of making another one on the actual day, but life got in the way, as it always does. But the only one that I made was pretty good, if I do say so myself. I made a goat cheese, dried fig, and rosemary Irish soda bread. Of course, the Society for the Preservation of Irish Soda Bread would probably have a bone to pick with me because they insist that anything other than flour, salt, baking soda, and buttermilk would disqualify it from official Irish soda bread status. Of course, still others would object to that and promise that the original version was made with caraway seeds and raisins and was sweetened rather than savory. Either way, whether it qualifies or not, mine was pretty well received, which is a slightly less braggy, but still definitely braggy way of saying that it was, it was pretty devoured. It went really well with our, um, we did like an afternoon charcuterie tray and it paired really nicely with a quite a bit of wine in which we indulged that afternoon. 
I wasn't sure how the goat cheese would actually react in the oven, so I didn't include as much as I probably would have liked to initially. I, it, to my delight, it actually stayed in these big kind of satisfying chunks. And I think it could have done fine to have some more, just have more kind of dotted all over the bread. I love this kind of new classic combination of fig and goat cheese and the rosemary, which actually was from my garden, but it absolutely grows like a weed all over where I live. They're just really wonderfully complimentary flavors. So I've been trying to use up this really very small container of dried figs that my my partner brought home a while back to make actually a goat cheese and fig pizza. And I made a fig and rosemary and chocolate scone actually that was really good. And in the middle of making that, that was when a chandelier in the middle of my house actually crashed down to the floor unexpectedly, which was really fun. But that's a story for another time. Anyway, that combination I really like. And so, you know, because I still had figs to use somehow, that was sort of the inspiration for making this particular kind of soda bread. We did serve it with more goat cheese on the side, mostly because I couldn't, you know, I was wary of putting it all in there. And it was really nice with even more goat cheese on top. So it's fun to play with Irish soda bread. It's a pretty simple base for a quick bread. You don't have to wait all day to make it. And it can be made sweet or savory or a combination of the two, which is kind of what a, a goat cheese and fig combination is. So the question is, where did it come from? How did people start making bread like this? So technically speaking, it would appear that soda bread, meaning a quick bread risen not with yeast, but with the reaction of baking soda, also called sodium bicarbonate, with some sort of acid, which usually nowadays is buttermilk or kind of sour milk uh, or even yogurt. But it was previously made with diluted hydrochloric acid, which seems to me to be a pretty dangerous route to take for some bread. But, you know, you do you. But apparently this is not exclusively Irish, even though we tend to always hear Irish soda bread. But it has some roots in Native American methods and has produced variations in Scotland, Serbia, and Australia, to name just a few. Pearl ash was used by Native Americans as the reactive agent with acid, just like the baking soda of today, to cook quick breads on hot stones. I couldn't find a whole lot of information on whether this methodology made its way from the Americas to Ireland prior to the discovery of that same reaction in breads and baked goods over in the UK, Ireland, and elsewhere, but I think it would be pretty foolish to assume that it's not possible I think it's foolish to assume that we couldn't have picked up or some settlers couldn't have picked up that methodology from people of color who were here and doing it before. I don't know that that's true. I don't know which way it is, but I certainly wouldn't assume that necessarily people in other places independently came up with it. It's possible, but I think it's fair to pose the question either way. But prior to breads risen with this um, soda, this alkali acid reaction, breads risen with yeast were the only risen breads available. Yeast can be really finicky, though, and if you've ever baked with yeast, you will have experienced this, right? You don't want to give it too much. You don't want to put the salt on the same side of the bowl as the yeast because that'll kill it. You, you know, when you make an enriched dough where you add eggs and sugar and all this other kind of stuff and butter, that will retard the action of the yeast. So then you need to compensate for it. You might end up with a packet of yeast that you didn't realize has died, which is really very sad to think about. But we've all done that, right? You've opened up a packet of yeast and you pour it in your milk and 
you wait and no bubbles and it's very sad, you know, but it can be very challenging to work with. And in particular, it requires this sort of strong gluten structure to be developed in order to be effective and reliable, especially without the sort of modern advantages of things like proving drawers and kitchen aids with dough hooks and other kind of these, you know, modern measures that have been developed to aid in the structural structural integrity of low gluten or gluten-free flour. So obviously we know now that we make and see low gluten and gluten-free, you know, breads made with yeast and other products made with yeast around. But we also have to remember that people baking hundreds of years ago may not have the luxury of time or the internet, or like I said, all those other kind of modern devices to help them out. So if your bread is simply not rising with yeast because you don't have that proper structure, you're probably going to abandon it to try to find something that's going to work a little better. So domestic flours in Ireland were made with a soft wheat variety rather than the hard wheat that's ideal for that the development of that really nice, strong gluten structure. And as such, many breads in Ireland, because that type of flour didn't work with that yeasted bread, were cooked flat on a griddle instead of being yeasted at all. Curiously enough, though, by the turn of the 20th century, Ireland was using a good amount of imported flour from the United States, particularly of the soft wheat variety, ideal for soda breads, but not so for yeasted breads. It would seem that the popularity of soda breads may have had a hand in shaping the import patterns of flour and perhaps the relationships, at least in importing and exporting, between the two nations. This, I should note, is not necessarily fact. I'm just speculating, you know, on one of the historical patterns that I see. It could, I could be completely wrong, but I think it would be fair to ask that question, especially since if Ireland is going to be importing flour from one place or another, why wouldn't they just import the hard wheat variety and then start making bread with yeast like everybody else or like the breads that they've seen before? But intentionally, they were importing this soft wheat variety that was more ideal for soda bread. So it's very popular excuse me, very possible that the popularity of soda breads could have actually shaped this import pattern where they were choosing to import more of that soft wheat. That may be or may not be true. Unclear, but I think it's fair to ask the question. So according back to the uh, Society for the Preservation of Irish Soda Bread, November 1836 was the first official reference to Irish soda bread, not cake, in Ireland. Well, it was actually in the Farmer's Journal in London, but it was reprinted in various publications. But also in 1836, there was a patent filed by John Whiting, an Englishman, I tell you, that apparently at great length described a method for baking bread with the acid-alkali combination, in this case, baking soda and diluted muriatic acid, which is just another name for hydrochloric acid, which we mentioned earlier, and just, just yikes, you know, for me. But anyway that pretty closely resembles the kind of general soda bread recipe. Was this a chicken or the egg, chicken in the egg scenario? I mean, look, far be it for me to suggest to an Irishman that the Irish soda bread might be English-ish. That would probably result poorly, I'm guessing, and that's with my Irish heritage on my side. So moving on. In 1861, the journal Chemistry and Chemical Analysis by the Ireland Commissioners of National Education, published a short section about the reaction of bicarbonate of soda, or baking soda, and how the lightness and rise of the bread was due to the disengaged carbonic acid. It appears that there was some question or concern 
as to whether soda breads were as traditionally, quote-unquote, wholesome as yeasted breads. And this journal seemed to conclude that they were. I'm mostly really chuffed by the fact that chemistry journals were writing about baking in the 19th century, but I also have to wonder, since this was set up by the Ireland Commissioners for National Education, could there have been some sort of governmental push from that side to promote soda breads, perhaps in support of that sort of import-export pattern of the soft wheat? Now, again, I don't know. I'm just questioning the sources, right? If you have it coming from the Irish government, do they have a particular aim or is it pure science? I wish it were just pure science, but I think it's always important to kind of pull back the layers and just wonder about those things. In 1835, one year before John Whiting's patent on soda bread, royal baking powder came into production in Britain, which is not to be confused with the American company that was incorporated in 1873. The company produced the ready-made blend we know today, the bicarbonate of, I wrote acid, did I mean soda? Who knows? Baking soda. And gotta get back to where my notes are. Cream of tartar. So baking soda and cream of tartar packaged together, which didn't need the acidity of buttermilk or hydrochloric acid since its reaction came from the included tartaric acid. It only needed moisture to activate and create that CO2 necessary for the baked goods to rise because that's what's happening. It's creating carbon dioxide, which is making them rise. So why then, if that became available in 1835, did soda bread made specifically with baking soda remain so popular and beloved? Was it trouble breaking into the market or was it just too damn expensive? It remains a mystery, but most believe the latter, and I can certainly understand that if you've ever perused a baking catalog for specialty baking items, those can get very, very expensive. If you'd like to read some of these primary sources, the Society for the Preservation of Irish Soda Breads web, uh, website has them reprinted, and you do have to type that entire thing into your search bar, and I got so frustrated typing it over and over in my notes that I finally just copied and pasted the whole time. So I don't know how many people run the Society for the Preservation of Irish Soda Bread. I don't know if they make Irish Soda Bread, but they have a website and they do have some interesting articles there. So if you're interested about that, go check it out. My takeaways for this are just to experiment and have fun because that's what it's all about, right? It has all this history behind it. And would my great-grandmother maybe be turning in her grave at the prospect of a jazzed up soda bread? Perhaps, but perhaps the great wheel of innovation stops for no one. And the greatest thing about these breads is that they don't take all day and they're really good. So if you want to have, you know, a bread ready for dinner or charcuterie or whatever it is, have a little fun with this. And if it doesn't turn out well, if the flavors that you picked aren't what you hoped they'd be, so well, you've only wasted a couple hours, right? It's not like you wasted an entire day kneading and proving and kneading and proving a bread that didn't turn out the way you wanted it to. So have fun with it. Go sweet. Go savory. Enjoy. Actually, probably would be a pretty good bread to make gluten-free as well. So that's a consideration if that's on your mind. Moving on to baking at altitude. So this was kind of a fun experience that I had while making my pie day offering. Um, I decided to make a traditional apple pie in the combined styles of Deb from Smitten Kitchen and Stella from Braveheart. So uh, them along with Erin G. McDowell are, as I say every episode, I just want them to be my best friends. They seem so awesome. Um, and I actually noticed the other day on 
Erin Jean McDowell's Instagram that she had the same sign in her kitchen that I do, which is the sign that says uh, fresh pies baked daily. And I got really excited because it was the same one. I think it was from like World Market or something, but it just made me feel, you know, connected in an important way. So anyway, I decided to make this apple pie mostly because I was not in my kitchen. Uh, I live right at sea level. And so I didn't have necessarily all of the spices or even the implements that I would have at home. And I wanted to sort of make something classic without having to make too many elements. And I, you know, who doesn't love apple pie? Plus it was snowing there and it felt appropriate, even though it is technically springtime now, although on pie day, it was not springtime. And I wanted to make, normally I do a really big deep dish apple pie with a crumble top. That's one of the ones that I make for Thanksgiving. And I think I actually discussed it in the Thanksgiving episode, but that is one of my staples. But again, didn't have a deep dish pan. I had a, I found this ceramic sort of decorative pie pan that I decided to use. And I know I didn't have my very beloved King Arthur pans that I love so very much, but don't worry, it all turns out okay. I know you were worried. And so I decided to just do kind of a classic apple pie, double crust, which again, I don't normally do. I love a crumb topping. And so I went for the Smitten Kitchen recipe that is actually based on the Brave Tart recipe. So a couple of things were different with this from the get-go, just from the recipe before we even talk about baking at altitude. It is a baked at a constant temperature for a longer period of time. So most, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Pie, fruit pies are baked at a higher temperature initially and then lowered and baked kind of to let the, the filling set. But this one is just baked at about, I think it's 375 Fahrenheit for about 75 minutes typically. So that, it was going to be a little bit different from the get-go. And then at altitude, I found, first of all, while making the pastry, I feel pretty comfortable making the sort of, um, it's a combination. Mine is between short crust and flaky pastry. So it's got a little bit more, a little bit greater ratio of butter to flour than a lot of traditional short crust recipes. And I do a little bit of rolling and folding as I go. So I like to really build up those layers and I do feel relatively comfortable with it. So I felt like I, I knew what it should feel like, how, how it should react, how it should feel in my hands. And I did have to add probably, I wasn't really measuring but about two to three more tablespoons of water to bring it together. I didn't use egg in this recipe. A lot of short crust does use an egg to bind it. I was just using ice cold water and I did have to add a bit more, but I was trying not to freak out about it, <laughs> not to freak out, not to worry about it as I was adding it and just to go with how it felt. And it turned out that that worked out well, which was great. And I also didn't have a rolling pin. So I used, I think it was a can of kidney beans that I wiped down, obviously, uh, but that worked out pretty well. You know, it, it did, I mean, you know, what is it? Uh, necessity is the mother of invention. So there you go. If you're ever in a pinch, I recommend a can of kidney beans or actually an empty wine bottle will do the trick very well too. So a little bit more moisture in that pastry. And then I was shocked when I put my pie in. I did put it at 375. Oh, in this glorious set of double ovens they had in this kitchen. My goodness, I really miss 
having two ovens. My parents' house used to have two ovens. And now I have an absolutely adorable, very cute little kitchen that I love baking in. My house is really old. It's from, well, by American standards, it's really old. It's from the 1920s. So the kitchen is this very adorable, very cute, tiled, sweet little kitchen. And I love baking in it. But boy, do I miss having double ovens. <sighs> so anyway, the double ovens were great. But I did crank it to right at 375. And they were a lot newer than my oven. So I think that their temperature was pretty accurate. I'm relatively sure that my home oven's temperature is not quite accurate to what it says. I'm just guessing based on the reaction of a lot of baked goods that I've had. I really should get an oven thermometer and check that out, but I was pretty sure for the purposes of this analysis that it was right at 375 or at least very close. And I went and put it in for 75 minutes and I checked it right about 50. And lo and behold, it was very much cooked. You know, I did a, an egg wash on the top with a bit of granulated sugar, so I didn't want to over estimate how cooked it was just because that egg wash does make it brown a bit faster on the top, but it looked pretty good. You know, it was looking pretty brown. It was looking pretty dry. It was all slumped down as, you know, apple pies should be. It wasn't all mounded anymore. And I was like, okay, I, you know, I did some quick Googling and I, which I should have done before I started, but anyway, and I saw, okay, you know, they usually recommend turning the temperature of your oven up and taking the baking time down because it's going to cook a lot faster at altitude and you essentially don't want to dry it out by having it in there at a lower temperature is my understanding. But I was like 25 minutes though. That's a, that is a long time out of a 75 minute baking time to have it be done. But Google said, trust your instinct. So I did. And I left it in there about five more minutes. And then when we cut the first slice, it was actually cooked. It was cooked top and bottom, no soggy bottoms, all that good stuff. So it definitely, definitely took the baking time down quite a lot. So I would say if you are going to bake at altitude and I'll, and I baked cookies later that week and shortbread later that week, and the cookies definitely went much faster. My typical recipe, I already do cook them at a slightly higher temperature than many traditional cookie recipes, which do about 350 Fahrenheit. I do 360, which is only 10 degrees, but that is, you know, about what they recommend turning it up is 10 to 15 degrees. And they did cook much faster. They were probably about eight to nine minutes instead of the sort of 11 to 13 minutes that I'm used to. So if you are going to bake something at altitude, I would look it up. There is, you know, the general sort of rules, depending on what you're making, take the temperature up a little bit. The baking time will go down. You may have to add some moisture, some more wet ingredients, but do some, do some Googling on it because there are a lot of really great conversion charts that will help you with specific items. So I'm not going to sit here and read them all out for you, but they do have a lot that are, are really great. So if you know, if you're making cookies, if you're making cake, if you're making pie, you can go check those things out. So go with your instincts, look it up, kind of have fun, experiment a little bit. And then, um, finally, Oh, and I was going to say that was one of the first pies I've had in a long time that we actually served with ice cream, which was really lovely. I don't habitually buy ice cream because I will eat the whole container in at the very most three days, at the very least one day. So I just don't buy it because I have no self-restraint, but we did buy some 
traditional vanilla ice cream and had that on the pie. And it was very good. Very, very good. And I love to have pie for breakfast because, you know, it's practically all fruit. So, you know, ice cream and pie for breakfast, great start to the day. Finally, I would like to talk a little bit about, this is actually not going to be a super long episode, so hopefully just gets you going, springs you into the the new season a little bit. But I would like to talk a little bit about what I am hoping to do with Bake It Off. So obviously, I'm just here to talk about baking because I love it and I constantly seem to talk to myself and other people who are not all that interested about it. But another thing I would like to do is to kind of join it a little bit with my love of animals. So actually, as I'm sitting here recording this, my cat is curled up like, well, actually, she's just a little more stretched out now, but like a little adorable shrimp. And my dog isn't in here right now, but normally he is right below my feet while I'm recording or doing anything really. And they are both rescues. And I'm very, very, very passionate about animal rescues. And unfortunately, since I don't have a giant ranch home with acres of land to adopt 25 dogs, I would love to do the next best thing, which is help to find all of those critters loving homes. Um, And I have so much admiration for the people who actually set up animal rescues and get down on the ground and do it themselves. And so I want to be able to support those people. So I'd love to do a feature every episode on a different animal rescue and I'll do them at the end. So if it's not your thing, if you don't want to, if you want to listen to the baking part and you're not so interested in listening to the fundraising part, that's absolutely fine. But I want to feature one and give you an easy way to maybe send them a couple bucks in the name of Bake It Off or just for yourself. Because I think a lot of us have this generosity where where we go, yeah, if you, oh, this is right in front of my face. I would love to give you $5 or $10 or whatever you can spare But we have really busy lives and it takes time to go and search them out. And so I would love to bring some of these organizations to you. And if you have a little bit of extra, because every single little bit helps, that would be wonderful. Um, In addition, although I can't reach everybody this way, I will be hosting some bake sales in uh, my hometown and I will be making probably three to four bakes per sale. And of course I welcome input from other local bakers. If you guys would are listening and would like to contribute and we'll set it up somewhere on a lawn with iced tea and lemonade. And the basic structure will be, you can get a piece of whatever it is that you want. Either you can give me, you know, cash while you're standing right there and I will donate it, or you can donate straight to them and just show me that you did. And there will be some delicious baked goods waiting for you that you could hopefully enjoy in the sunshine, perhaps with a beverage or something like that, and just be happy and enjoy the fact that you've done something to help out someone else um, and to help out these animals who really deserve better lives and deserve to have a great time on earth just like the rest of us do. So I will let you guys know more about that. I'm a firm believer in that little things can do a whole lot and that every little good thing that we do adds to the world's pile of good things. And it can feel really overwhelming sometimes to try to take on all the world's problems or to take on all the things that matter to you or the things you want to help with. But even little things like this, even 
a few bucks here and there to help support people that are really trying to make the world a better place can be wonderful and can make a huge difference. So I hope that you enjoyed today's slightly shorter episode. I think I perhaps raced through my section on soda bread a little bit, but I hope it inspires you to make something delicious um, or something not delicious. I mean, hey, we all we all have kitchen fails. So whether it's good or not, I'm glad that you are getting in your kitchens and baking it off. I hope that you have a wonderful spring. Hopefully we can all find some more light coming into our lives with this season. So as always, have a wonderful day and get in the kitchen and bake it off.